Hey everyone, welcome to Bridge Stories. This is our new podcast giving people space and time to tell their stories of encountering God and being changed by Him. We hope you're encouraged by these stories and also that you leave excited that you know a lot of really awesome people a little bit better. So sit back and enjoy. All right, here we go. Barry Case, yes. it's good to be here with you. Thank you. I've known you for a lot of years, and it's a real honor to sit and just hear your story. And um, there's a lot of things I know about you because our families are connected, and I've lived life seeing you, admiring you. Um, and um, But there's so many things about your story that I don't know. And um, so tell us about you, Barry. Um, tell us about what life was like, and specifically, where'd you grow up? And tell us about those early years. Well, I was a baby when I was born. That's fantastic. I was born in the same hospital that my wife was. Okay. Only she came a year and a half later. It was in Linwood next to uh, Southgate. It's called Lingate Hospital. Uh, we lived in Linwood until I was five. Then uh, my dad moved us to Big Bear because he got a job as the uh, as assistant fire chief at George Air Force Base as a civilian. They had regular crew members from flight crews that did the firefighting, but they were the, this guy, my dad and this guy were the chiefs. <clears throat> so we were in Big Bear from the time I was five. Um, he was, my dad was killed April 14th, 1954, when a, a jet plane hit his truck, killed him and his partner. How old were you at that time? I was just nine. I had broken my leg that winter. And I had just got my cast off. Wow. And I didn't, never got to see him. Wow. Um, so that was a real shock. Then a, yeah. a year later, our house burnt down. <laughs> so we... Ten years old. Yeah. House burns down. Yeah. My brother was 14, 14 and a half. We moved into... My mother was a server in some of the nicer restaurants that were in town. And um, she had met a guy that owned a chinchilla farm. And <laughs> I don't know why that's funny. I didn't, I've never been to a chinchilla farm. Oh, but it, was, I... it was beautiful. So he had rooms for the people that worked for him. But when they were out of season, they were raising these chinchillas, they had plenty of room. So we moved into a, the chinchilla farm, so to speak, for a while. And it, it was an experience at, at that age, you know, seeing these animals and to milk the chinchillas or anything no or, no oh, no what was your what I was your chore to, i didn't do anything i just went to school <laughs> and uh she when that was over it was uh 1957 we left and came uh down to downey okay and um we uh, i'm sorry we yeah came to downey and uh, we lived in Downey for two years. I got in a whole bunch of trouble, sixth and seventh grade. Well, so wait, rewind a little bit, because I'm really interested in what it was like growing up in Big Bear. Because oh, most okay. people just go to Big Bear to ski or visit, but you were a local. You, you knew the place. What was that like? It was fantastic, to say the least. It's uh, some of my best experiences. Uh, my best buddy, Donnie Cooper, was the son of the, uh, we were Cub Scouts, and his mom was our troop leader. And we were very, very close, to, uh, Donnie and I, and 
didn't keep in a whole lot of uh, contact uh, after we left. But yeah, I skied and broke my leg skiing. You know, I did the typical stuff. Broke my arm on the ice. <laughs> broke an ankle ice skating in a pond. Mm-hmm. Probably lucky I didn't go through the yeah. ice, you know. So those little things that kids do and it happened to them. I went through all of that, and then pretty much roam free as yeah. a kid. Oh, you go absolutely. hiking in the forest, and absolutely, we I we would hike and go away all day long, and you know, the phone system then were party lines. You know, you didn't have cell phones, or you couldn't go to a payphone and dial mom. They they weren't they weren't around like that. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it was um, pretty free lifestyle, mm. pretty different. Uh, we were very poor. Uh, most of our clothes came from Christmas time when uh, our relatives would buy us clothes or come up to visit and, and bring stuff. So went through a period of uh, necessity yeah. growing up. So my mom just couldn't make it, couldn't uh, afford it. And, afford uh, Big Bear, that's what yeah. brought you down to Downey? Yeah. It was you and your brother? Yeah, me and my brother. And then my brother at this time was 17 he was playing football at Downey High, and I was going to a, a junior high called West Junior High. I went there the first year they opened, and I graduated from there. But by then, I'd gotten a lot of police trouble. Hmm. That's and, interesting. Uh, yeah. And <laughs> so I, uh, my mom said, because she's working all the time. Yeah. She said, I can't leave you. My brother left, got mad and left, and moved in with my grandma in Linwood. So... It was just me and my mom. She was traumatized after my father was killed. And so when it came to holidays, she went into her bedroom and slept. So when Christmas came, she took her two weeks, and she was in the bedroom, and I was there. And if my brother came by and was gracious enough to pick me up, take me over to my grandma's house, then I had something going on. Otherwise, it was just me and the Hmm. the boys in the street. So I was always in trouble. So did that kind of thing affect you throughout your life when it came to Christmas or holidays or whatever yes. else? It just... Oh, yeah, especially birthdays. Oh, yeah. I am. I just can't handle a birthday. Yeah. And I've had to- a hard time with Christmases and Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. As you probably know. <laughs> anyway. So she was having such a hard time with me. She moved to Linwood near her parents were. I would go every morning before football practice, and uh, I played football Linwood High School. What position? Tackle. Uh, I was a pretty big tackle mm-hmm. in 1961 and 60. What was, was, what was your size? You were... 200 pounds, 6 foot 2. Yeah. But that was big then. Yeah. So then I met Jan, which is a mistake <laughs> for her. <laughs> And fell in love with her. So my senior year, I didn't play ball at all. Wait a minute. i got to rewind. Yeah. How did you meet Jan? What was that all about? It was a Wednesday night Bible study. Oh, okay. And she was sitting in front of me, and I was sitting with a friend of hers and a friend of mine. Judy, what was her last name, Jan? Remember Judy? She had a convertible. Anyway. Judy with the convertible. Judy with the convertible. Uh, she says, hey, let's go get ice cream after after Bible study. So Jan's sitting in between her, and I'm on the passenger door because I had lost my license. That's a story. Too many tickets, though. So. <laughs> at, at any rate, so 
we get our ice cream. We're driving somewhere, yeah, probably back to Hollydale to get my car, go home. And uh, so we get there, and Judy pulls in the parking lot. And I looked at Jen. And I said, you're going to be my girlfriend. <laughs> she looked at me and said, no, I don't think so. You don't have a choice. And that she met Barry. <laughs> so the poor gal was intimidated into dating me. Yeah. And then it went on and on and on. So and, I just have to ask you, because you, you met her at, at a youth group. So if I go back to Big Bear, go back to your childhood and things like that, was church a part of your life? Was faith a part of your life? Or when did that actually come into your life? Well, let's, let's talk about that. I had an uncle that was a Church of Christ preacher. Mm-hmm. My grandfather, my mom's dad, was a Pentecostal minister, and his wife was a Church of Christer. So you got yeah. way into the spectrum there. Yeah. So most of my uncles were Church of Christ, but my mom was more evangelical. Cause the church we had up there was evangelical. And uh, I got baptized there. I was visiting my uncle and got baptized there. And I was visiting, um, I think I got baptized at the church Jan and I were going to. Everywhere I went, everybody wanted to baptize me. So I, I really didn't know God, and I studied the Bible. I didn't know Jesus Christ at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had no relationship with the man called Jesus. Yeah. I just had no doubt about God. Right. You know, and by the way, I'm an American. I eat apple pie. I love my mom. I salute the American flag. I'm a Christian. You go to church. Yeah, and I go to church. Mm-hmm. And that's what a lot of people think mm-hmm. is because they're going to church. So I, uh, I'm 17. I'm still in high school. And my mom gets a letter uh, from the Superior Court of Los Angeles. This judge says, you will, on this date and time, you will remand your son at this location, which was up in East L.A., and he will be uh, under the authority of the California Youth Authority. He's going to go to what you call juvenile prison. Wow. Or, and it's very specific, the bottom of the letter said, or you will bring me his induction papers into the Marine Corps. Very specific Marine Corps. Not Army, not Navy, not, uh, Air Force, yeah. Marine, Marine Corps. Corps. So there I am 17. So I had to take my mom to sign up because I was underage. So she had to sign the okay form for me. Wow. Yeah. And she's crying. She's crying. Yo, your dad was in the Navy. He'd be so upset. What are you thinking during this time? For you, I mean, obviously there's no choice in your mind. You're going to go Marine Corps is what it sounds like. But what's going on in your mind? Well, you know, um, all I cared about was driving my 53 Plymouth and dating Jan. That's all I cared about, you know. (laughs) And, uh, I mean, I didn't care about school that mm-hmm. much. Uh, I really didn't do well in school until I, until I got in college and was married, and I did very well in college. Uh, so off I go into the Marine Corps, and uh, the Cuban conflict was on. Yeah, John F. Kennedy had just gotten killed, and uh, a lot was happening in this nation. We saw the beginnings of the uh, domestic terrorism through the Weather Underground and so many others. Uh, organizations, I could name dozens of them because I worked out for so many years in police work. And uh, uh, they came to us the day we were going to leave, take our first leave from boot camp. And uh, we had a week off, and then we had to show up at Camp Pendleton at San Onofre. San Onofre. And uh, 
they came to all of us and said, okay, you guys are all two-year reserves. You've put in for MOS's, MOS's military, mm-hmm. what you're going to do in the military. And I wanted to go to recon. I wanted to go to jump school and, and do that. And so there was one in San Redu, and they were going to assign me to that. And they said, it's not happening now. You're all in the six-month reserves, and you're going to go back to where you signed in, and that's where you'll be assigned until we activate you to go to. And nobody knew about this country at this point, Vietnam. Uh-huh. And we trained when I was at Camp Pendleton with Vietnamese Marines. And um, phenomenal, phenomenal men. Mm. Harder than nails, um, toughest group of people I've ever been with. Wow. Oh, they were phenomenal. Anyway, uh, so we got out, and of course, our whole reserve unit was considered uh, the West Coast, Southwest Coast uh, Marine Corps Reserve was considered the most active reserve unit in the nation. So when you say you got out, you mean you got out of boot camp, all your training's done, yeah. and now you're, yeah. you're sent back to. The reserve station. reserve station, ready to be deployed, however the government wants to send you. Yeah, and so it's 1965, and the riots break out in L.A. We're on Alameda Street in Compton. Mm -hmm. So we're hearing all this happen, right? But we just got activated to go to Vietnam. So we're all signing, you know, insurance papers and everything for our family, and we're all packing, and they're giving us extra gear because once we load this gear, we're on a plane to Vietnam. Wow. And uh, I can't even imagine that as a young man. I mean, I can't imagine, especially what you described as a country that you didn't even know existed prior to them telling you what it was. Exactly. And I was exactly 21 years old and married. Oh, okay. We, we missed a part of the story then. We'll go back to Well, I captured her, so I think I married her when she was 14. <laughs> <laughs> How old were you when you guys got married? She was uh, 19, 18, and I was 20. Okay. And uh, so it was the following year. Yeah. So we're all set, ready to go. Let's get to it. I'm kind of jazzed about it, so I'm taking my squad. I was a squad leader at the time, and I'm taking my squad over across Alameda to um, the phones to phone their family and say, bye-bye. Wow. So... Here comes down Alameda, truckloads and truckloads of white people, all armed. My whole squad was African-American. And we were locked and loaded with M14s. <laughs> so they drove up, you know, doing everything they could do to irritate these guys. And I uh-huh. said, we're not going across the street. Get back in the compound. So we got back in the compound. We're there. We're all falling asleep, sitting on the floor. And he comes and he says, stand down. We're not getting activated. He says, we're all going to fl- go to Camp Pendleton. We're going to fly down to Coronado. And we're going to train with this new unit called the Navy SEALs. So we got to train, not much, but enough with the That was a new SEALs. unit at that time. That, I mean, now you new. say Navy SEALs, yeah. everybody knows it's elite warriors. They, and- they really are. They're phenomenal people. And so I had a lot of great experiences, even though I was in the Marines. I mean, in the Reserves. Yeah, being in the Marine Corps, and it provided me with a, a special discipline that I didn't have. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I've been fortunate to have that ever since. Mm-hmm. So, What was their purpose, sending you to train with the Navy SEALs instead of sending you off to Vietnam? Well, what had happened is the vice president at that time, um, and I don't remember why the president was Johnson, was not available, but the vice president said, 
have the Marines stand down. We're going to activate the Michigan Air Guard. And they began, because they needed them to transport uh, ammunition and gear to Vietnam. Mm. So they had to get them there first. And then uh, it was that year that they landed the Marines on the beaches in Vietnam. They actually were a lot a lot of Marines there that had flown in. Yeah. But it was one of those news things, you know. So the Marines yeah. charging the beach and all that. Yeah. So So now you're married. Married. You're you're not sure. I mean, you're thinking you're going this way, you end up going this way. Yeah. Where's God in your life? Is are you still at that place of not only am I an apple pie, now I'm now I'm a soldier, of course I'm a I'm a Christian. Right. Um or or have you begun any kind of relationship with God or no Jesus? No. Not at all. Um, I was 23 and wanted to do something with my life. And uh, I chose the police work. And I went to 27 different departments and applied. And in that time, if you hadn't been in the the military, you couldn't apply. Oh, I didn't know that. Cops back in the 60s, if you didn't have either a partial degree, and I was working on one at that time, Mm -hmm. if you didn't have a partial degree or... You had been in the military. They didn't want to mess with you because you didn't have the discipline. Huh. And they knew if you'd been in the military, you certainly weren't a hippie. And that was those years when the hippies were taking yeah. everything over. So the last agency that I went to was Compton PD, and they hired me. And I went to L.A. County Sheriff's Academy for three months. Um, we had had a baby by that time. That was Ginny. And uh, she was pregnant with Barry Ann. And uh, just about ready to, to, look, to deliver when I went into training, you know, out of, out of uh, the academy. So I was in training out of the academy and uh, loved it, loved every minute of it. Couldn't get enough of it. How did it compare to your experiences in the Marine Corps? Were you, was it easier? Well, it was actual combat. Okay. It was, in other words, finally I got into this, into the action, so mm. the pursuits, the shootings. The, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, I don't remember a day. In my entire career at Compton, that myself, or the guy I was working with, didn't get in a fist fight. Wow. I mean, we fought. Every arrest resisted. Everything was hate the cops. All the literature posted on, you know, I mean, just everybody hated mm. discipline, mm-hmm. so to speak. And, uh, of course, it was the end of the 60s, 69, 70, that... Uh, it's a good year for Volkswagens. It was. 69, 70. Let me tell you, I love. 71 gets into the. I love those Volkswagens because, mm-hmm. you know, they were always dumping dope out of a hole in the floorboard. <laughs> See? We always pulled the Volkswagen over with two cars. The first car made the pullover. The second car stopped and picked up the dope that they were dumping through the floorboard. <laughs> and you knew that routine, huh? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it, it, was, it was good times. And uh, a lot How of. How many years were you there in Compton then? Four. And uh, I've been involved in a lot of exchanges of gunfire. And things were dramatically changing for, like, uh, officer-involved shootings. Uh, at that point, uh, the attorney general said, I don't want um, an officer involved in a shooting. I don't want his department to do the investigation. It mm-hmm. has to go to another agency. Mm-hmm. Well, I had been involved in a lot of shootings, more shootings than most of the guys on the police department. Mm-hmm. Not because I wanted to, just because I was in the middle of stuff yeah. all the time. So um, I said, you know, i got to do something different. And I was drinking really heavy. 
I mean, and now you're a father of two. Oh uh, yeah, and you get off work and you go drink graveyard or swing shift. You, the bars opened at six, so you got off at seven. And graveyard, so you went out and drank and got went home, went to bed, and then came to work. And mm. I realized this this is not working, not mm-hmm. working for me. And I was lifting really heavy, and it wasn't working for that either. So it's messing up your. Oh yeah, yeah, kills the strength. So uh, a lot of my buddies had gone down to Huntington Beach, and they were building. So I went down, applied, and they hired me. And so uh, the day I was sworn in, it's not like today. You know, I think you've been to a few swear-ins, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. I entered the building, and uh, the sergeant grabbed me and says, Go upstairs, see the chief. I'm a solid chief. And uh, he said, Raise your right hand. Raise my hand. You're now a policeman. <laughs> that was it, huh? I mean, the badge. Different day, I guess. So when I went to Huntington Beach, my chief, who was Robotel at the time, had been a cop in Compton back in the 50s, in, before I got there, for sure. And uh, it was the same with him. I walked in the door, and he threw the badge at me. And he said, uh, you're a wild man. That's why I hired you. All the guys that came before you were wild, and I'm going to hire some more because the cops we got here now don't know what to do with what we got going on. We had, in those years, early years in the 70s, we had the start of the skinhead movement. We had the Nazi oh, wow. lowriders. Wow. We had Hell's Angels, the vice president of Hell's Angels. We had uh, Hessians in town. We had, you know, homicides going down. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, was, it was a wild mess. So a bunch of us came out of L.A., Southgate, Linwood, Compton, uh, and LAPD, L.A. sheriffs came and built that department to what it was uh, when I left. And, uh, oh, he said, you're a wild man. Don't you ever lie to me. He says, if you do something wrong, you tell me. You may get time off, but I'll keep you out of trouble. Don't you ever lie to me. And I guess he said that to every guy that came out of L.A. So don't you ever lie to me. Hmm. So, and I still see him periodically. We have breakfast together. Great guy, great guy. Built a beautiful police department. So, working undercover, 76, I'm drinking heavy, heavy, heavy. What did you look like when you were working undercover? Well, at this particular point in 76, I was bald, I had a big Fu Manchu, and I was about 286 pounds. I had, uh, you know, typical slicks, what bikers call slicks, you know, your pants can stand up because they never get washed. And I had uh, the Levi jacket with pockets sewn in it for my guns and stuff. And uh, I had all the Nazi insignias and, you know, all the crap that makes you look like a biker. Mm -hmm. I just didn't have colors. And uh, I worked with a little Mexican guy named Rudy. He just phoned me this this afternoon to say Merry Christmas. And uh, we did crazy stuff. Jan had tried to get me to go to Middle Land over and over and over. I'd come home. Generally, Sunday was my only day off. And so I would come home one or two in the morning. I'd have a, um, a fifth of Bushmills and a six-pack of beer, and I'd sit there and drink till football came on. And then by the time they got out of church, came home, I was in bed sleeping uh, so I could wake up early Monday morning. Say, say, by this time, you've got three girls, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So... It was really bad, really bad for Jan. I was, uh, I was hard on her. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I was a mean person, of course. Uh, when you drink too much, you get mean. Well, you're in a world, a violent world. You're seeing the worst of the worst every day. Yeah. And my friends didn't help. Mm-hmm. Because they loved, when I was off, calling me and saying, let's go drink. And because they go drink. And I never had any money because I had these three little kids. And Jan couldn't work, not because she could or wouldn't, but she just couldn't take care of them. They were all little. And... Uh, so they'd take me to some place, and they'd tell the partner, hey, he's broke all the time. Give him your mistakes. So I'd be drinking these mistakes, and once I got spinning, they'd know it, and then they'd go get a fight, get somebody to fight me. They'd say, that guy said this, or do you know what he thinks about you? And uh, so the next thing you know, I'm going to fight. <laughs> it was crazy, so I stopped hanging around with them. And, uh, good move, huh? Yeah, it was. And I started, once Rudy became my partner, uh, we started hanging around with a lot of uh, uh, gang suppression units and uh, organized crime units throughout Southern California. We did uh, swap meet task forces and stuff like that. But the drinking didn't stop. He and I would go to a bar called Abby's <laughs> in Long Beach. It's not there anymore. Which is your granddaughter's Which name. Which is my granddaughter's name. And uh, we'd stay there half a day, you know, just drinking before we'd go home. Um, so here we are in 76. And uh, I know something's going on at church because she's looking hot. I mean, really hot, dressing to the nines. Looks good. Okay. So she tells me about this ex-Marine minister who stutters. That didn't work on And this Jewish guy that's his partner, and they have the young marriage class. And you're just going to love the guy that leads the worship there, Tom Wood. And so I go, right? This young Mary said, I got to do this. I got to do something. How old are you at this time? Um, 30. Uh, so we're talking 76. So I'm 32. Okay. And uh, I'm looking at all this, and everybody's happy. And sure enough, this big old guy stutters, and so does Tom, unless he's singing. <laughs> and uh, here's this Jew preaching Christ. And I said, I just can't believe this. I don't know. This is racking my mind. So the drinking didn't stop. I was, things were working on me. So it was the year that we first did Touch Fountain Around the World. Jenny was 10. And she played the little cripple girl that got healed in it. And uh, on her crouch was the singer. Say, tell, let everybody know what that is, because those were big productions, right? Well, I, I wasn't around for them. They were. They, we had uh, Disney people that went to our church that set everything up for these. And uh, the touch felt around the world actually traveled the United States oh. and uh, ministered in many, many churches. And it was the Azusa Street Revival thing. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, Telling the story of the Zuzu right. Street Revival? Telling the story of the Zuzu Street Revival. Oh. So I had been going to church periodically, sitting at the back, uh, you know, wearing my outlaw clothes. And uh, the first time I went to church, not the, the marriage class, but the church, Ralph got up and started calling out healings. He's the pastor. Ralph uh, Wilkerson, church. yes. Mm-hmm. Ralph Wilkerson got up, started calling out healings, so... 
I stood up, and here's my wife and my little blondies right there. And I went as loud as I can shout, and you know I can shout really loud. Yeah. BS. Only I didn't say BS. Really? Yeah. So I walk, <laughs> I walk right past this guy called Fred Putz. Wait, Fred how, how many Putz. people? Are, how many people are in the room when you do this? I mean, because I remember that theater in the round. It's uh, a, it's a large. That was like a mega church. A lot of people. Maybe around. A thousand. Yeah. Easily a thousand or so more. At that, at that gathering, more than a thousand yeah, people, yeah. and you've had enough. Nobody heard. Really? Nobody turned around, nobody blinked an eye. Huh. Fred Prutz, um, and you probably wouldn't remember, he was a big, big old guy, big bear-like guy who's worked our aisle, said, God bless you, brother. Come back again. Pat me on the back, and I walk out, and they're walking out behind me. So I went home, tied one on, went to work the next day. And uh, here we come. Well, I'll tell you about another. Yeah. The second time I went, we went to the second service because they'd all gone to Sunday school and we'd gone to the young marriage class. Uh, we're waiting to get in, and as the people come out, this guy, bigger than I, grabs me, puts his arms around me. He says, Barry, I've been praying for you. I love you. I love you, Barry. I'm, and I'm trying to get my gun out to shoot him, you know, thinking, what the? <laughs> he says, come on, I'm going to sit in church with you. He'd been one of my partners at Compton, became a Christian and was running a uh, Christian uh, school in, uh, out in uh, the desert. Hmm. And I can't think of the name of the little town. My, one of my other partners used to live there too, but um, wow. just blues. And he died a year later of pneumonia. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was crazy. So there were some signals there. Yeah. You know, mentally I'm... It's changing things, you know, changing part of my thinking. And uh, here comes the, the, uh, the clinic. The clinic was a week long, and you could go to church 24-7. And you would attend classes. You had to sign up for them so they knew how many people were going to be there and so forth. And so I, I'm going to a few of the classes, but I'm working also. So during this... Wait, why are you going to the classes? Because now you're interested? or Because Jan, Jan was there, and I thought something was going on between her and one of the ministers. You know? So you're keeping an eye on your wife, yeah. and you're not believing what you're seeing. No, and she's, by this time, she's working in the, the Overcomers, which is uh, the handicap. Mm-hmm. She worked, uh, paid work yeah. there. And um, I had come home to have lunch one day, and I couldn't find any peanut butter, I think. So I phoned, and I said, I'm coming over there, and I'm grabbing you. You're going with me, and you're going to buy me some peanut butter. You know I mean? That's how a, 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 a sick mind I had going on. Yeah. So I get there, and I'm walking down in all my brilliance and glory, and out of the overcomers comes Millie and Ruth Ann. Okay? Now, I had met them, kind of, and... Uh, so Ruth Ann grabs my right arm, mm-hmm. and I don't think she knew that's my gun arm, so she better hold it. Uh-huh. And Millie comes up to me and starts speaking in tongues, put her hand in the middle of my chest, and keeps hitting me like this. Some courageous women. Let me go. And I'm going, what? And I'm just in shock, and I'm thinking, I'm going to knock them out, you know? And Ruth's praying for me, praying and holding on to my <laughs> arm. And I just, I kind of like that. I give up. I went out and got in my car and went to work. 
end Sunday, last Sunday of the week. There's a touchdown around the world, and they do it two or three times in a day, I think, if I remember correct. And uh, so I was in the crowd uh, when Ralph uh, gave an altar call. Bam. Straight up. Straight up. Wow. Straight up. I just... What a buildup. Tore, tore me up. Yeah. Was supposed to. Yeah. But things got worse. Hmm. Yeah. So I'm trying to kick the habit, right? Trying to work on that. Mm-hmm. God's giving me grace. Mm-hmm. Helping me with it, too. Can I just ask you, though, at that moment, I'm just thinking about all the things leading up to that. Yeah. You know, um, how God works in our lives. Just to get you to show up, even though you're skeptical. Oh, yeah. I mean, you could have stood up and screamed what you screamed, and then they'd say, we don't want you here and kick you out right. forever. Nobody says anything. Guy welcomes you to stay. Right. You know, and then you have this outburst. You go see your wife. You get prayed for by two crazy charismatic women, women who yeah. love Jesus so much and that they're not afraid of you, which had right. to feel weird. It did. Yeah, and then you see your 10-year-old daughter on stage. Getting healed. Getting healed, but also wasn't, yeah, and so she's a part of this production right. that just touches your heart. Man, what a, what a, what a wise God. <laughs> but it did get bad. Yeah. Because Jan comes to me and she says, I want you to go to school. I've already graduated from Cal State. Mm-hmm. I want you to go to school of theology. We had a fight. Hmm. Almost a knockdown, drag out fight over it. I said, I said, Jan, God's got too many crazy ministers out there. I'm not going to be another one. You're thinking about, like, just your experiences growing up in church? Or, or yeah. Well, what, but, what made... you know, there was a lot of attacks on churches. Yeah. Because there were a lot of strange churches going yeah. on at that time. Like weird stuff happening. Oh, absolutely, and... absolutely. And uh, so I said, yeah, I, I'm a cop. Up comes this meeting with John. We would go over there, because they lived very close to us at that time. Mm-hmm. And we would go over there, and he would talk to me. He said, you really need to go to school of theology. So I go, fill it out. Got to have a certain amount of money, right? I didn't have that kind of money. Here's an envelope in a mailbox with that money in it. <laughs> so I started the school of theology, and I stayed with it until we all left Milliland. So John, who you were talking to, is John Cairns. John Cairns, he was yes. The, he was the Marine that had a stutter. Stutter, right. He put all the pieces together as Ruth Ann's husband, who was a part of the founding pastoral team of this church. Right. Yeah. As was Millie. Yep. And uh, so John calls me over, and he's having a meeting with the intern ministers. He says, I want you to tell these guys about your life and all that and everything. So it's all, and you know how John... I don't know if you ever noticed or if he ever did it to you, but if he wanted you to stay, didn't want you to get up and go or whatever, he'd grab you and hold you. You could be standing. Most of the time, he'd grip me when I'm sitting because he'd make me sit next to him. And so they're dismissing, they're leaving, and Ruth Ann there, and Jan's talking to Ruth Ann, and uh, he grabs me. So they're all gone. And, you know, we had prayed. Everybody was gone, and so... He looks at me and says, I want you to become an intern minister. I went, no, John, you're nuts. You don't need me there, okay? He says, I want you to become an intern minister. I want you there Sunday morning for the intern meeting, and I'm going to give you an assignment. 
that's it. So I became this intern minister, right? And he says, go ahead. I was going to say, again, how much that would have worked for you. You're talking Marine to Marine that you're not going to be able to respond to a guy who's like, hey, I just maybe go home and pray about and see if you feel like you want to be an intern minister. You needed somebody who was going to tell you that's what you're going to do. And you got to remember how big John was. Oh, yeah. He was a young man at this time. He was in his late 40s, early 50s. Mm-hmm. So, and by now, I'm born again, and so I'm at work, and I'm saying, you know, maybe it's time for me to get out of this undercover business. Mm. So I got a graveyard squad so I could study at night. Um, and I was, just, I was still a patrolman at the time, so I was working the front desk at night because we were open 24-7 then. And I would do my my uh, theology homework there at night. And uh, that worked out good. But this, this intern stuff, just, I don't know about that, right? So we go to the meeting. He says, I'm going to give you your assignments for the week. He says, Barry, when you get here tonight, you're going to work uh, baptismal. I said, okay. And so he takes me back and he says, look, this is a charismatic church and the Holy Spirit touches people when they're under the influence, out of the influence, it touches streetwalkers, it touches pimps, they will come in here, get saved, and they want to be baptized. Okay? So I want you to understand that. And there are miracles here. Well, then, we would have baptism every Sunday night after church. We had this giant baptismal set right out in front. I was a little kid yeah. when my parents took me to that church, and I remember, that's the one thing I remember is the big plexiglass. Yeah. Uh, I remember because you could see all the way through the water. Exactly. Yep. And so we would have anywhere from 75 to 100 people being baptized wow. every Sunday night. Uh, Danny, I, I baptized prostitutes that would go under the water, come up smelling clean hmm. and being clean. People that were limping, get out of that baptismal. I saw miracle after miracle after miracle. I know that miracles are real today. Because of what I saw, those experiences, and are going to be happening soon again. There's a movement of God to try and reach out to people because they're so stubborn. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you because in your story, you're going forward for an altar call, you know, and I see that you got kind of emotional when you're even thinking about that moment, but things were still bad. What what changed over the time? Because there's something in between you going to the altar call, things are a little bad, but now you're studying theology. At what point did you find that your life was being transformed, that you were changing? I think right then. I think right then is the realization that I had not been born again. No matter what, how smart I thought I was, and yeah. I, and I, 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 the faith in God, who God was— was put in there, of course, at the beginning of time, but by my grandparents yeah. and my mom. And uh, my mom and dad were both alcoholics and smoked and violent. They were violently passionate and violent with each other, so I lived with that. Yeah. And, of course, learning that from the womb, yeah. I was a violent young man and sought out violence. Mm-hmm. So I knew that, and I knew that had to change. So the best thing that happened after being baptized was the fact that I was a cop in Huntington Beach. Yeah. So that... I could change. I wouldn't yeah. have the violence that I had at Compton. Mm. And uh, it came slow, and I'm still changing. Well, I just asked the question because I think some people have, like, this dramatic conversion where 
they accept Jesus and then all of a sudden they feel like a different person. It sounds like you accept Jesus and you continue to grow. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's obviously a, dras- a dramatic moment where you say yes to him. Yeah. But, you know, you're still working things out for oh. several years and yeah. into studying theology and it's messy. And you're in a church that accepts you because they see Jesus at work in you, and you're, you're with a pastor who says, yeah, I know you got these things going on, but I'm going to still impart to you um, wisdom and give you opportunities to minister and so forth. So is that, the, is that kind of the environment, or am I... Yeah, no, words that, is, that is, that is. Yeah. Things weren't easy. Uh, they were never easy, because that old self, uh, I mean, you've been hanging around with these guys with language like you, the Marines have and the Navy mm-hmm. has, and uh, when you stop, it doing that, they're looking at you different, you know. Not that they stopped caring about me or being my friends, but things did change, and they saw that change. And that's the biggest thing in law enforcement. These guys that I'd worked with saw a change and knew that it was real. Yeah. And uh, and I was thankful for that. Yeah. Yeah. So so now you're, you're going through school of theology. How many years did you do that? Four four years, yeah. and you're an intern minister, right. and your assignments are baptizing people. Is there any other things that they, that Pastor John gave for you to do or experiences that you had as an intern minister? Yeah. Because I was a cop, they sent all the druggies, the prostitutes, <laughs> for me to pray for. Uh-huh. And because I was a cop, we would get... Uh, for instance, we got, um, what was his name, Janet? Jerry Lee Lewis? No. Was it Little Richard? I remember, little Richard. I remember yeah. hearing stories about Little Richard. It was little, little Richard, you know. And Little Richard wasn't little. <laughs> was a big guy. And uh, so I was with him all day there to keep people away. And, uh, so you're, doing, you're the interim minister, minister, intern minister of security. Right. Head of security guy. Yeah like that so and it was uh i learned a lot more because of those experiences than if i'd just been doing some teaching a class yeah i was already teaching anyway i had my teaching credentials teaching at uh, uh, golden west college so i was doing all these things all the time Mm -hmm. pushed in yeah to one life yeah that's a lot it is it was you said that the guys at work saw something different in you, and, and I know just from knowing you, those guys still call you. You've done weddings. You've done memorial services. Mm-hmm. Uh, you relate with those guys like nobody else can. Yeah. How's that been for you? Well, uh, in 84, 85, I wanted to go full-time in the ministry, and I told John, I said, I really want to go to full-time, but we came here in 84, and... Uh, it just the door just didn't open. It wasn't that he didn't answer that. He didn't say, "Okay, let's do this." He says, "You just keep praying on it. Just keep praying on it." Because I knew, he knew, that somewhere down that road, I would have some influence on the yeah. men that I'd been with for so long. Maybe it was full time ministry, just not what you thought it was going to yeah. look like. Yeah, yeah, it it was, and uh, several agencies. I mean, a lot of Garden Grove cops that knew me undercover had become Christians also and would have me visit their church. And, uh, 
it was a it was a good life. It was good. It was a lot of fun mm-hmm. during those years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so so now you know you're well. Like I know there comes a point in your law enforcement career where you're getting close to retirement age. You're looking at different things to do. How was that for you? I mean, that's we're going through a lot of life here. And yeah. but but what what was that like? It was um, traumatic. Mm. I didn't want to retire. Um, I, I saw, I, in fact, I did an article for, we had a, a department magazine that came out every other month. It's called Justice for All. They don't own or publish it, but they interviewed me about, are, are you ever going to retire? And I said, no. I said, you're going to find me in, the, in my uh, supervisor's car somewhere slumped over the steering wheel. I'm going out. I'm going to see Jesus in uniform. And uh, that didn't happen. I, I did retire. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was hard. My chief at that time, a guy named Kenneth Small, during that time we went to Africa, if mm-hmm. you remember, in 85. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Uh, 90, I'm sorry, 2005. Mm-hmm. Uh, he phones me and he says, ah, you're not doing good. Are you? I said, no. He says, want to come back to work part-time? I went back to work part-time for 14 years. <laughs> <laughs> so I was in in uh, in the job for fifty years. Fifty years. Yeah. Wow. That's a calling in and of itself, though. I mean, I'm just curious how you look at that because I think sometimes when people come to know Christ, um, they think that the ultimate is that you become a pastor. Like somehow we have this in our mind that you know if you're a really really good Christian and you're called of God, you study and you become a pastor. Right. Where it seems that your life, that God had a, a different plan, and I think for so many, He hasn't called. If everybody was pastors, how would we be the body of Christ, right? Exactly. So He calls you. Do Do you see that now, looking back, that this wasn't just something you were interested in, but that God called you to be a police officer? I do. I do. You You know that I was involved in several situations that uh, yeah. a lot of cops retire out of because they can't handle yeah. it. But God, and especially studying Hebrew in, uh, in, at the Meliland, I, uh, it was already worked out in my mind, but I realized God had already worked it out. Okay? Because there's a difference in murder and a difference in taking a life. Mm. Because you have to. Mm. And uh, I've been reading the book. It's a study guide on Deuteronomy. Very good one. Hmm. By a guy you like a lot. In fact, you mention him a lot, and I can't think of his name. And uh, I ran into that when Moses is telling the children that are now going to go into uh, the promised land what the difference was. Hmm. And when God told them to take these towns and obliterate them, hmm. okay? Yeah. What the difference in what that was. And what the difference in murder was. Oh, yeah. There's two separate words. Yeah, what a tough thing. Yeah. 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 And because uh, he was telling him to do it because it was judgment time for those people. Mm. And that was it. And uh, so I realized, and I, I, I used to think, well, I've never been upset about these things that happened. I've never had this trauma, no uh, PTSD, so to speak, because I had taken a life. And uh, I... It must have been built in me from the get-go, from my Pentecostal grandpa I had. Yeah. Yeah. So now you're looking, um, 
you know, you, you, you retire, you go back for 14 years, just keep working. And I know you, you're still working. Yeah. <laughs> what are you doing now? I'm uh, team security for uh, the L.A. Chargers, um, but I only work the facility when they're uh, working out or where they're practicing to keep mm-hmm. people away from the practice and to uh, make sure their wives don't visit them and that kind of their girlfriends show <laughs> up. And they do. They'll show up and try and get on the property. Yeah. It's an interesting job. You enjoy it? Yeah, I do. Yeah. But I'm just two days a week. Yeah. And during the season. So what do you do when you're not taking care of the Chargers and you've, you know, what, what do you like to do for fun or for just because just you can? Take my wife out to lunch mm-hmm. or dinner. When we leave here, we're going to go out to dinner tonight. That's cool. Yeah. I'll take her to Jack in a Box or something, you know. One of those. <laughs> something fancy. Ugh. I've been in your garage before. Yeah. There's lots of weights in there. Yeah. So what are you, you, I was just talking to you about this before we started doing the podcast. Yeah. And you work out a lot. I've been recalcitrant the last couple of weeks because everything that's going on, you know, the build up to go to Christmas and everything at the, at the Charger Center. Um, so I've been, I haven't been in there, but I will be back in there. Lifting. Yeah. I've given a lot of my weights away. I'm never going to be the lifter I was, but... I know you have some records and things, don't you? Powerlifting records, and there's a lot that people don't know about Barry Case. <laughs> well, not sanctioned by the AEU, because some of the lifts I did were not power. Li- they were power lifts, but they, mm-hmm. they weren't part of the three power lifts. Okay. And uh, I used to challenge my buddy, who was a world record holder for many years in powerlifting. I used to challenge him to a 350-pound shoulder press from the back of your shoulder, <laughs> but he had to sit down to do it. Well, he could do it standing up, but he couldn't do it stand, sitting down, and I could. So uh-huh. I used to beat him at that, but he bench pressed. Unbelievable. He was, he's the first guy that broke 2,100 pounds in all three lifts. Wow. Yeah. What was your max bench press at your peak? I think at my peak, I was in the middle fours. Yeah. Never see that again. I used to bench press the bar. That's 45 pounds, right? Yeah. And you put the two bigger 35 plates on there, or 45 plates in my peak. I was doing that, no problem, Barry. You skinny kids have a lot of strength. Well, it's a long way up with long arms. I got these freakishly long arms. That's more the issue. It's not strength. It's the distance. Yeah, one of the kids that worked for me as a cadet and retired before I did. Skinny kid. <laughs> he used to come into the gym and work out with us. But he'd do aerobic things. Slide on. I said, Kevin, come over and bench press for me. So I put 140 pounds on it. Bam, he's knocking them out. And so I said, oh, and he's skinny. So I put 50 more pounds on there, and he's knocking them out, pumping them like that. And I'm going, Kevin, you're too skinny to do that. <laughs> But it, it's a judge co- a book by the cover, huh? No, no, you can't. But you, you learn that there's muscle and tendon strength, and you can have muscles and tendons that are built for that, yeah. where some people have to struggle to get to that point to lift like that. Mm. So it was always a struggle for me. I was big and slow, so lifting heavy was a struggle. Yeah. That's why I did it every day. Yeah. 
Well, I was just it's, we kind of kind of wrap up. I'm I'm looking and and we're thinking about your life and many different turns that God brought and things that would potentially have been traumatic for somebody. Um, but you seem to have a extra gene there to be able to handle difficult things and and that you're able to endure things so that other people don't have to. You know, you're able to to serve in that way and and um and as you look back over your life and the way that God was weaving things through from grandparents that and uncles that had influence on you, even when you didn't know the Lord, uh, you knew about him to the point where you come to know Christ and then grow in your faith, formally trained, and then continue out your calling in law enforcement. Um, it's a fascinating, fascinating interweavings of what the Holy Spirit was doing in your life. And from where you sit now, um, what what are some things that you would share with a, another generation, a generation that's coming up, maybe those that want to follow Christ but are in a vocation, in a particular job, and, um, you know, and, and maybe they have aspirations towards ministry, or uh, I, I think about, and what I'm hearing in your story is, you thought God was doing one thing, but he's doing something else. Mm-hmm. Um, what have you learned about that? What would you say to somebody in a similar situation? I would say wait on God to make it obvious that where you want to go is where you want to go. Yeah. Don't make a snap decision. Pray and pray and have your friends and your family praying, not for a specific purpose, but pray for God to reveal the, his purpose for what you're going to do. Yeah. Because you could mess up a whole lot of people and your family hmm. by jumping into something that you think, because you think, this is where I want to go. Yeah. And this is what I want to do. Yep. You got to get the eye out of it. Huh. It's got to be about God and not about you. Yep. So. I was thinking of that verse, if you want to be great in God's kingdom, you got to learn to be a servant. That's right. A servant of all. And, um, you know, sometimes we get ambitious in ministry or ambitious thinking, and it could be a selfish ambition. We don't even know that, right? That, right. We're, the eye is very there, very present, and we want to do certain things. But from what I can, and I know of you and here in your life, is that you chose what, what God wanted. Yes. Yeah. I believe I did. Yeah. And uh, uh, I don't know what's coming, what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, I pray for healing on some areas that you know about mm-hmm. in my body. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I'm lucky I did the weightlifting that I did, or I don't know that I'd be able to do what I do now. Yeah. So uh, God keeps revealing different things to me just like that. You'll say something. Somebody else will say something. You know, you're ministering up here, but you think you're ministering to everybody, but you're really ministering to me. Mm. And and God tells me, see, telling you, wait. Yeah. Right on. One of John's favorite passages was those who wait on the Lord will be lifted up on the wings of eagle. Mm-hmm. He loved that. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I love the rest of that too. They run and they're not weary, weary. and they walk and they're not faint. And uh, yeah, I want to thank you, Barry. I want to thank you for opening up your story to us, and I hope that people who know you and have seen you around here get to know you a little bit better by watching this. But um, 
that's my prayer for you, that as you're waiting on the Lord, he's not done with you, he's not done with any of us, uh, that, that you're going to mount up with wings like an eagle. Uh, thank you. Thank you. All right.